Okay, we're going. We're going, we're going. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Gonna Try Really Hard Not to Laugh Asia Tech Podcast. Recording live from Drew Digital Park. You gotta come and see this campus to believe it. You can't do that. This is easily one of the most ambitious projects in Asia. Today I'm talking to Lily, give me your last name again, Bruns, yeah? Bruns, yeah. Bruns, I got it, not Bruns. Bruns, startup storyteller, and the owner, and I can't believe that this was still available, startupchiangmai.com. Wow, how are you? You did, didn't you? (laughs) I'm doing very well. Already, obviously, having too much fun here. Yeah. Can you just give me a little bit of your background and for the for context for the listeners, for people that may not have heard you telling stories or seen you yet. So my name is Lily Bruns. Uh, I grew up in uh, Chiang Mai, Thailand, where I am currently located. I went to international school here, moved to the U.S. in my teens, uh, stuck around there through college. I'm a proud graduate of the University of Florida. Go Gators! I moved back to Chiang Mai after I graduated college. I uh, did my undergraduate degree in anthropology. I was convinced I was going to like, you know, run an NGO and save the world. And then I realized that people who run NGOs and try to save the world have like absolutely shit business skills. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? You already did. So allowing or not allowing is really irrelevant <laughs> yeah. at, at this point. So I realized that people who want to save the world don't really have a lot of business marketing sense. And so I decided to go to grad school. I did my MSc in Innovation, Entrepreneurship, and Management from uh, Imperial College Business School in London. It's a mouthful and it sounds so pretentious, but I had a really great time and I learned a lot and I met amazing people. After Imperial, through a consulting project that I was doing for uh, through my master's, I linked up with this company that prints your photos on marshmallows and I wrote this really kick-ass user guide for them and I tricked them into sponsoring me for a visa and paying a bunch of money so that I could continue to live in London and have lots of fun. <laughs> so that was my that was my entry into startup. I worked, <laughs> I worked with them for a year. Uh, after that opportunity, I uh, moved to New York, worked at an e-commerce startup, stuck around there for nine months after, which I was just really just miserable and sad. New York can make people really sad. It feels like it must be a lonely place to me, particularly in the startup world where you're just working like... Yeah, it's... I, I love New York as a place so to visit. I. Um, I have family in New York, so that really gives me a lot of joy. But I think uh, New York is kind of like the global epicenter of like this work culture. I feel like uh, I feel like Americans like kind of fetishize work, they where do. like they're obsessed with like how many hours they've worked and like how many times they've got in over the weekend. And there's just this like constant pissing contest, whether you work in like banking or startups, whether you're making any money or not, everyone's just like, yeah, or not, or you're making nothing. Uh, you're like a starving artist, but you're working your ass off. And there's this like sick pride in how much you work, whether or not that's actually getting you any closer to achieving your dreams, or if you're just pissing away your life for someone else's dreams. I think if you're working 90 hours a week, you're doing something wrong. Right, right. So I got sucked up into that, got super burnt out. I ran away to do something completely different. I moved to uh, Western Virginia, where my uh, family has this. Uh, this beautiful old house. I love this. Which has been in our family for 150 years. So I moved out into the mountains, away from civilization, and ran the family bed and breakfast for a while. I got to set up with our first website, so that was super fun. And so I was just going to help my cousin out with her legal technology startup and helping her out turned out to be a full-time remote gig 
um, as her director of marketing. So back into the world of startups, and that was my introduction to, to remote work. And because the bed and breakfast is closed over the winter, because it's an old house and like pipes freeze and stuff like that happens, closed up the house and came back to Chiang Mai to hang out. I always like came back to Chiang Mai to visit. I can never stay away for long. And I came back and there's just like, my heart just felt happy. I just knew I wanted to be here. So over the last couple of years, I uh, shifted into freelancing and have moved myself back. And so I've been back in Chiang Mai now full time for about two years. And I've been trying to do stuff with startups here. <laughs> I want to ask a little bit about the bed and breakfast because I, I, if I, my research is right, it didn't start off as a bed and breakfast 150 or 160 years ago. It's always been there, but it was a school first, no? Yeah. So the house, the original structure of the house is like a log tavern. And the area is known for its hot springs, which people come to take the waters and heal. And so our earliest claim to fame was that when George Washington came to the village of Warm Springs, his footman stayed at uh, the tavern. <laughs> then from there, um, bits and bobs got, uh, got added to the house. It became a, it was a hospital for a while. It was a school for girls. And it was during that time that the house came into my family. So it's been an inn. It's been a place where people have come together to rest and to uh, soothe their spirits for a long time. Do you, think, do you think that there's something in the blood, in the DNA, maybe, that says you have to start something from scratch? I mean, if somebody in your family bought this thing, I'm not kidding, though. Like, if you, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, my father started his own business, not always the most successful, but, like, still did it. My, my uncle started his own business, his father started his own business, my brother runs his own business. Like, I think there's something there. I want to get to that in a bit, right, a little bit later, like, what it takes yeah. to be an entrepreneur, because I don't think it's a normal person that does that. Yeah, but, I... But you've been in Chiang Mai now, you said, for two years. You always mm -hmm. came back. It feels to mm -hmm. me, and you and I talked about this offline a little bit, right? My first time in Chiang Mai was 1998. And then 20 mm -hmm. years later, I went back the second time. And wow, it was just yeah. a different place. But it feels like there's some kind of magic there. Yeah, there absolutely is. I think some people will just try to class it as like a mini Bangkok. But I think it's a completely different city. The thing that constantly amazes me about Chiang Mai is the quality of people here. Yeah. I mean, sure, there's a lot of trash, just like everywhere else. But for a city of this size, we have an absurd amount of talent. There is something about the city that really draws people. We People who are at like the top of their game, whether those are artists, creative, filmmakers, uh, technologists, entrepreneurs, uh, something about the spirit of the city really captures them. Yeah, what is it? It's, I think partially it's like a, a lifestyle element. Um, there's a very like sabai sabai, right? A very comfortable pace of yeah. life here that makes you kind of want to just like take a step back and relax. And for me, you know, recovering from New York, this was like, this is a good place to do that for a good place for me to reclaim work-life balance. And so there's something about the city that encourages you to do that. We're surrounded by nature. Right. Which I think is a very good soul. You can hop on a motorbike and within 20 minutes, you're either like, you know, in the jungle or driving through these scenic rice paddies. And I think the spirit really needs that. Speaking of the spirit, there's also a very like a strong spiritual community here. Like how? Whether you're interested in like Buddhism and meditation or you're like more of a yoga person. There's a lot of people who care very deeply about that here. And I feel like it's becomes a sort of 
mainstream kind of part of the conversation. It's too super normal to just be like, I'm going to go off for like a three day Vipassana to sort of like recharge. So we're going to have to like reschedule our meeting and then we'll come back and build this global enterprise next Monday. <laughs> right, right, right. Next Monday, we're going to build something gigantic. So Chiang Mai also ends up being a really big place for digital nomads. So it's not just yep. the fact that Thai people have figured out that there's something going on there. It's almost like the world has figured it out. It's like a not mm-hmm. very well-kept secret kind of thing. But you know what I mean, right? Because if I go to somebody in Vermont or in Virginia and say, hey, do you know what a digital nomad is in Chiang Mai? They would be like, is that a drink that they serve in Singapore? Like they'd have no idea. (laughs) But but there's something going on there that has drawn people there. And I think that Thailand itself has kind of figured it out halfway. I don't know what what percent, but can you just tell me what what makes it so compelling for the nomads to be there besides the things you've already mentioned? And then maybe what's missing? What would you add if you had, if you, if someone put you in charge, what would you add? (laughs) If someone put me in charge, how exciting. Yeah. So I, I didn't actually know Chiang Mai was digital nomad hub until I was working in London. And one of my colleagues who's a developer told me this. Uh, I've always known that Chiang Mai has had a very like rich um, expat population. Yeah. I mean, like culturally rich. I don't know about the money side. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I actually took a trip back while I was living in London and sort of got my first taste into what that was. So I think people who tech workers who were kind of like the first people to sort of create this wave of like remote work, right? They Chiang Mai was on their radar. You know, you could get really good uh, Wi-Fi, a good infrastructure good travel nexus if you want to fly and explore elsewhere in Southeast Asia, right? Yeah. Yeah, just a really nice place to live. And so they were the first wave of digital nomads, and that sort of ushered in, I think, a more diverse crowd of sort of uh, entrepreneurs, e-commerce people, and that's sort of just, like, grown. Um, It's gotten really huge, uh, I think, in the last couple years when people sort of like decide that they want to become digital nomads, like the the newbies, I'll come here because it's like so highly ranked uh, on stuff like the nomad list. There's lots of people who create YouTube videos, podcasts and blog posts talking about like why Chiang Mai is so amazing. And so I think like this uh, or Bali is often people's first stop. But, you know, you asked me what I think is missing here and what I find really sad and something I'm trying to work to address is the fact that there's so many nomads here who never connect with the local people. Right. And there's a, a lot of people who live in Chiang Mai who have no awareness of what a digital nomad is. You mean local people don't know? or No, like um, there's tight geographical concentration. Most of the nomads uh, start out living in uh, the Niemann neighborhood right. where there's lots of like cafes, co-working spaces. And so, you know, maybe those people who are working there, the business owners there, are aware of digital nomads. Definitely, there's a lot of places that are called co-working spaces, but I think it's just like opportunistic branding, you know? It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. a yeah. shop with extra outlets. But shameless plug, I organize a monthly meetup with some friends here for the Chiang Mai Entrepreneurship Association. And our, like, stated mission is to create a bridge between the Thai expat and digital nomad communities because there are a lot of businesses here that would really benefit from the sort of knowledge and expertise and digital skills that nomads can bring. There's a lot of expat owned businesses here that would benefit from the same. And, you know, I think, I think digital nomads who come to Chiang derive a lot of benefit from being here. And I think a lot of them want to connect more locally. They want 
the opportunity to give back, but it doesn't always feel so easy to do so. There's um, like the language barrier is definitely a big challenge. Yeah. You kind of de facto have to run our meetups in English and that kind of precludes a lot of Thai people from coming, unfortunately. So that's something that we still kind of need to figure out how we address that. Do you think English is a structural problem, not just in Chiang Mai, but in Thailand as a whole? Oh, totally. I mean, if you compare Thailand to, to its neighbors, like I have lots of friends who like were English teachers who moved away from Chiang Mai because even though they loved it here, the pay for an English teacher is crap. You know, they can go to Vietnam, they can go to South Korea, they can go to other countries and make a lot more money. So there's sort of two sides to this, right? Like one is English education is not necessarily great. But the other thing too is that like Thai people can be very humble. I think like overly so. And I've had people who have like asked about like, you know, Thai people who have asked about coming to the meetups and they're like, oh, but my English is not so great. Is that okay? I'm like, no, 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 please come. Like there are several of us who can help you translate if you feel like it's really a challenge. And then they show up. And they're absolutely fine. Like, sure, their English isn't perfect or flawless, but it's mostly just that they're self-conscious about it. And they don't want to, like, there's this, like, thing in Thai culture where you don't want to burden the other person, right? It's like, Kwam Grang Thai. Kwam Grang Thai, yeah. Yeah, and that's, like, it's a shame because I think there's there's so much that the Thai business owners can teach the nomads as well. Just, like, like sure, there's a lot of really, like, savvy, savvy people who know how to set up an online business, but if they want to dive into the world of brick and mortar, they have, like, no effing clue what they're doing. Right, no idea. Yeah. And there's also, like, you know, there's capital here. There's, like, successful business people who, like, have built up their local business, and maybe they're looking for, like, something, like, an opportunity, or they're looking for somebody to mentor, but those connections, again, don't necessarily happen. Right. And I think there's a lot of people kind of spinning their wheels separately. And so part of like what I guess I'm trying to do is now that I sort of like know a lot of people and have some platforms like this super cool podcast that you've invited me to speak on, I really want to like figure out how we can leverage those to like build connections. Right. So I think there's a really interesting way. There are multiple ways actually you can do this. If you somehow combine the CMEA, the Chiang Mai Entrepreneurship Association, get people to come out of there. And mm-hmm. maybe you have your own podcast. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, yeah. you're laughing, but I, I think it's really important, right? We talked about this offline, but it's such an intimate way to communicate with people, but also to tell stories to people. And as an yeah. internet storyteller, right, as an online storyteller, a startup storyteller, the best way to do that at scale is just having a one-on-one conversation with someone. It's so intimate. You can really get to the core of who they are and tell their story. But for you, like this arc that you've had through your life, right, of being mm-hmm. in Chiang Mai. No, but it's interesting, though, right? Being in Chiang Mai, educated international school. What's the school that's there that you went to? Uh, I went to Nakhor Payap International School. Okay, and that's really cool. But do a lot of kids go there? I mean, I've never even heard of that school before, right? And my daughter's in international school, so. Yeah, so when I went there, it was much smaller. The school has since grown quite dramatically. And there's been an explosion of international schools in Chiang Mai. But at the time, uh, the student body from like preschool through grade 12 was probably less than 300 people. Right. The whole school? The whole school. How many kids were there in your classes? You know what I mean? Like when you sat down <laughs> yeah, in math so, class, how many kids were there? Mm-hmm. So like when I, so I was there until like grade seven, right? And yeah. so I went to school for those formative years of my life with like most of the same like 10 kids. And maybe we would have, you know, like 
people coming and going. So we'd have like a class size of like like 15, 10 of us who'd known each other since kindergarten, right? When, when you were doing that, and I always find this fascinating, right? But when you were going through school, did you know that that was not the norm? Or did you just wake up every day like a happy little kid and go to school and just be like, hey, here are my 10 <laughs> friends? Or, do you know, no, do you know what I mean? Like, if you always hung yeah. out with them, and now that you're, who knows, right? But now that you're a young lady, you have these things that you got from there that other kids your age, growing up in the same place but going to a different school, didn't get, right? Okay. So, I, yeah, I definitely knew that it wasn't normal. Okay. You know, I saw that from two sides. Like, uh, one of my best friends growing up, like, went to, a, like, a normal high school, right? Um, and so she, I had, you know, some perception through her of what that experience was like. Very different from mine. You know, even just, like, the uniforms and the right. stuff, right? Right. Um, and then also, you know, from consuming media, from like spending summers in the U.S. and like watching American TV, getting a sense of like what like American school is like. Like, did your Thai friends speak English? No, I spoke. Uh, I spoke Thai to my Thai friends when I went to like dance class or like Taekwondo class. Like, I, I spoke Thai with everybody outside of international school. Did anybody make fun of you for speaking English? No, you know no I mean? one made fun of me for speaking English, but there's definitely this thing in Thai culture that like when you're, so when you're half Thai, half American, yeah, like myself, so the Thai word for it is lukrun, which literally translates to half child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they say the same thing in Japan, half, you know, my daughter's mother's Japanese and they call her half, half what? Yeah. And so there's this weird thing that goes on in Thai society where like, which is complex and is something I've had to work through sort of like my entire life. And as like a, like Westerners in Thai society sort of get elevated, right? You sort of, for no reason other than the color of your skin and your nationality, you just get this like, Oh, you're like in the hierarchy, like you're above us. Right. And so sometimes that translates to like benefits and privileges, but it's also very othering, right? You're this other class. You're not one of us. Right. And so I felt, uh, I definitely felt a sense of that. I don't think that's something I like really put my finger on until I was much older. For sure. um, Because a lot of this comes off in not like an antagonistic way. No one's trying to be mean. And a lot of people are very much like, oh, you look cruel. You're so adorable. Um, And so as a child, you're like, I'm adorable. (laughs) I'm favored. But then you're like, wait, but then like, why does nobody want to be friends with me? And just like, it's, and again, it's not a mean thing, because, but because they perceive that you're different, they don't necessarily know how to interact with you. Yeah. And I was frankly not blessed with like the most social skills when I was a child. I sort of like, as an adult, this is something I've educated myself about a little bit more. And I think I actually self-identify as like, or self-diagnose as like having autism. Oh, interesting. I was also young for my grade. When's your birthday? What month? It's in October. Ah, uh, yeah. So you definitely were. Yeah. And so I think those things combined, like I had a hard time making friends if, you know, if it hadn't been for the fact that like I went to school with those same 10 people that whole time, right? Maybe I wouldn't have had that many friends. Um, And it was definitely a challenge, you know, like moving to the US and like integrating into like a new school system. Like your teenage years are like torture at the best of times. Add to that, like coming from an entirely different culture and being just a little socially behind your peers. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where were we? I feel like I wandered off. <laughs> no, you didn't. So I did that like five times. 
different states and stuff like that. So I get like it's really hard. You come in after the summer, right? And everyone's like, they're just looking at you like, who is that kid? It's just hard. Yeah. But I think, and I think I can pull this back into actually one of the other things that I want to talk to you about. Like entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Yeah. At any level, and I do think you have to have this sort of huge self awareness at some level to be able to st- to be able to think like, I can overcome this. I can be extremely yeah. persistent because I've been in situations before where nobody knew me, nobody knew anything about me, and I had to adapt and I had to figure it out. And I think that in a way that that's been super helpful for me, where I look at like, here is nothing. I have nothing. It's literally mm-hmm. a zero. And the things that I tell people I'm going to build, which is that sort of entrepreneurial thing, everyone just goes, no one needs that. And you're like, I think they do. I think they do need that. And then you yeah. start building it, and then you start building it. And when you're building it, people are like, they scorn you a little bit. I've had this happen. Yeah. And you get scorned, and they're like, I told you, nobody needs that. And you keep building and building and building. And then one day, the people that ignored you call you and go, I want to start my own X, whatever X is. Mm-hmm. Can I pick your brain? And there's like, right. and here's the half of me that's half, yeah? The half of me goes, no way. Because I've been working <laughs> forever and you've been ignoring me for the whole time. And the other half of me goes, sure. Because even though you're, what you're basically telling me is you want to compete with me in something that I've been doing for the past five years, you're going to give up anyway. Because you're only peripherally <laughs> interested in this. And I know I cannot execute you because I've learned way more than you. And the 10 things that I can share with you in a 30-minute conversation, which is all you're going to have, is meaningless. Anyway, okay. what is it about this entrepreneurship thing that kind of drives you, particularly after that experience you had in New York, which you just said was just so intense, right? Yeah. What, what makes someone want to do this? I, I got very excited about startups just it's kind of like this new thing that I hadn't really seen before and it seemed very exciting and I'm super into technology. It just really vibes with like the way that my like brain works. I'm like, yes, let's build a technical solution. Let's build like like elegant processes. Let's like survey our customers and use design thinking and all these things were just so magical to me. It was just like a playground. But I, I didn't really see myself as an entrepreneur in that environment. I thought I would be someone who would help someone else make their venture great because that's where I thought my own skills were. And it wasn't really until I like, honestly, it's only been recently that I think I would even feel comfortable calling myself an entrepreneur when, you know, when we first discussed, you know, maybe collaborating on like a regular podcast series, uh, I told you it, it tickles my imposter syndrome. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And so how do we circle all these things back together? So I, I started like uh, working for myself as a freelancer, right? right and then right. along the way, sort of these, you know, I saw these things that didn't exist that I thought should exist. And I just kept going out to other people and seeing if I could get someone else to do it, you know, because I didn't seem like I was allowed to do it. Like no one gave me permission to do it. I wasn't qualified to do these things. Someone else should probably do it. And then I just realized no one else was going to. And I was the only one who seemed to give a fuck. So I was like, Okay, fine. I guess if I want this to happen, I need to do it. Right. Um, but that mindset shift, like the first time that I actually was like, oh, I'm doing this now. And I was like, other people heard that I was doing this. I'm going to get more specific just so we can introduce weird things in the conversation and people can have something concrete. But the first business that I like started, the first venture in Chiang Mai that I did outside of just my freelancing work was to start a pole dance studio. Awesome. 
and no one else was doing this. And I was like, I have a poll. I'm just going to find a place to put it up. I'm going to start teaching classes because I bet you someone's interested. I bet there are more of me out there. And I found more of me. I found someone else who had been wanting to do the same thing, but just, you know, hadn't quite had the ball, like the brass to do it on her own. And so we decided to team up. And so like, we've been doing this for like a little over a year now. We're moving into like an awesome new studio, like actually really soon. We found some wonderful partners to help, sort of help us uh, take this to the next level. And now people like people here have heard about this. I'm like, oh, so you like you created it? Oh, that's so cool. And it's just like, it doesn't seem cool from my perspective because like literally the first couple classes I taught were like in a friend's like office where she would let me come in and move the desk around and set up a pole. And I was like daring to like ask somebody for money to teach them how to like do stuff on it. Right. But that's what you have to do. You have to do the very first thing that is just like small and takes a step towards it. Right. You have to take that first step before it can become anything and then kind of, like, if you keep doing it, it, if you are persistent and tenacious and solve the problems that will inevitably occur, all of a sudden you have something to show for it. You can look back and just be like, oh, crap. Like, I actually made a thing, which is really cool. You know, going back to the whole, like, cultural identity stuff, right? I think I've realized, like, even though it was really hard growing up uh, and feeling different and feeling, like, outside, um, I learn to become comfortable being an outsider yeah. and understanding how to sort of play my position in between cultures to my advantage. Cause there are settings in which it behooves me to like be more Thai and to play on that. And there's other times where it's just like, Nope, I'm American. I'm like going to be more direct. I'm right. just going to be loud and I'm going to make sure I'm heard. And that's what's going to get shit done. Right. And I think to be an entrepreneur, you have to be comfortable being an outsider. You have to be comfortable being different. I don't think that entrepreneurs, for the most part, are neurotypical. They're people who, you know, we have these, like, there's a lot of people who, you know, are sort of uh, on the autism spectrum, or people who have uh, uh, ADHD and, like, what's the one where, like, you can't read stuff? Dyslexia. Dyslexia, right? So many entrepreneurs have dyslexia. They don't do well in school, right? And so they're like, screw it. I'm different, I'm going to lean into being different, I'm going to make my own thing happen. And, you know, all these things that are really difficult as a kid, right, you realize if you can, like, you can develop into your superpower. And, like, if you can make that work for you, you can do, you can, like, become more confident in yourself, and you can actually, like, yeah, do cool stuff. Kind of sounds like that's happening to you, if it hasn't happened already. <laughs> I feel like I'm hitting an inflection point. Don't you, though? I can feel it. I really I mean that. I can feel it. And I can so, feel it almost, it's almost like you're hitting the inflection point while you're talking about it in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like, can't you feel it? I, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I am feeling it. This has been a, like a really interesting, really transformative year. I've had like really great opportunities. So like uh, with Beach City, who I know you from, right. um, sort of, you know, going back to that, like sometimes you feel like you need permission. Sometimes you just need to fucking do it and know what's yeah. going to permission but sometimes somebody invites you and you're just like oh, oh okay let's try this so with beach city who you know we go to tech events we go to innovation ecosystems and we interview people right i got linked up with them because they needed someone to redo their website to redo their brand messaging and then we've been working together for a couple months when they had this gig in hong kong that they needed another presenter for and they asked if i would like to come out from behind the computer 
to present. And I was just like, you want to pay me to go to Hong Kong and like nerd out with a bunch of startups? That sounds <laughs> awesome. But you know. had you ever done that before? Had you ever held a microphone no. and stood in front of me? Never. No. Like, I hate the way my voice sounds. I really, really hate it. Still? Still. I'm going to like, if I listen to this thing later, I'll, I'll cringe. But whatever. I think we're getting, we're getting some good stuff out. So that's the price to pay is to have to listen to myself <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. But sort of getting out in front of the camera there was really, it felt really empowering. And through that channel, you know, I had the opportunity to like go up to people who I probably wouldn't have been comfortable approaching before. Right. right. But you know, Lee, who's like the CEO founder of Beat City, has just been really like an awesome mentor. And just he's he's so like lackadaisical about some things. And he's like, so not fussed about like, power, right? He's just like, what? I'm a successful serial entrepreneur. I like, I'm hot shit in my own world. I don't, I'm not intimidated about going up to people. And you know, some of that kind of like rubbed off on me. So you'd never started anything before. I mean, you always looked around, you said, and, and were like, geez, why doesn't somebody do this? Yeah. It's, it's a cl- this is a classic human response of somebody should actually go do this. And the real response to yourself is, after you're finished looking around, is I can do that. And you maybe you know, you started with freelancing, right? Freelancing is like the first kind of jump into it. You're like, okay, someone's yeah. going to pay me for just the shit that I do anyway. That's mm-hmm. the first step. And then you're mm-hmm. like, I'm going to take my poll into my friend's office. And I'm going to ask people to dance with me and jump up. There. No, but this is what you said. I'm not making it up, right? Yeah. And then, like, people actually pay you. And you're like, wait a second. There are too many people in this office. I need a studio. And then you jump into a studio. And before you know it, you're running this small kind of and medium-sized enterprise. It's actually a business mm-hmm. that people actually pay you for. The people look at you now and think, that's amazing. And then one night, yeah. you just kind of go home and you're like, what else do I want to do? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's where the real power is, right? Like that, and I'm going to say little, but I don't mean it pejoratively, right? But that little test mm-hmm. that you did, step by step, now tells you, okay, I'm happy. I've succeeded at something, mm-hmm. maybe not at scale yet, but now I know what to do, and now I know even if I do fail, I'm not going to die. Yeah, and it's super. That word, I hate this word, empowering, but it's super pow- personally powerful. You're like, sure. I'm almost now. I cannot be killed. <laughs> I'm immortal. No, but you know that feeling. I'm immortal. I can walk into any place and go, I can do anything, even if you can't. I don't know if I would phrase it in quite that way, but I would say that Just through wait. pushing through all these things, I've I've learned to give fewer and fewer fucks. Right. If there's anyone who needs a, like, a kick in the ass to get started like on like creating a life that makes them happy, I would recommend read Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That was, I think one of the tipping points that set me on this journey. I, I read it. I was on a holiday from like work. I read it at the airport and I was like, Oh my God, I need to like internalize this stuff. I need to figure this out. And that got me started on this whole journey. And yeah. And and the thing is, you know, going back to one of the things that makes Chiang Mai really special is the people. There's a lot of people with this mindset, right? They've like, they've taken that first step and breaking free from the herd mentality uh, and like stepping away from the rat race and having enough courage to do that. And if you can, you can build a real kick-ass community. I feel like I'm in such a better position to actually capitalize on the opportunities that come that are around and that I'm finding these opportunities because I've really worked on myself. I've worked on my mindset. Right. I've worked on developing grit. I've learned developed my like my sales skills because I'm surrounded by these incredibly talented people 
who are also entrepreneurs. And we really, like, together we can collectively, like, help ourselves to level up. And, yeah, so if this inflection point is happening now, like, we're also a little bit woo-woo in Chiang And so <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of learning to embrace it. Crystals is still a bit beyond me, but this whole idea of, like, manifesting, right, right. is to me, starting to feel very powerful. I feel like I've started to try to envision what it is that I wanted from my life. Right. And now that I have a better idea of what that is, it allows me to like seek out opportunities that align with that and also to recognize what opportunities do and do not and to say no to the ones that don't and to say, fuck yeah, to the ones that right. do. So like, I think visualization is something that you just brought up, right? I think it's really powerful. And I was talking about this to somebody today, one of my other partners in business, and she said, I mean, it's never going to get that big. And I said, stop. <laughs> you don't know. Like, you don't know how big it can get. Mm-hmm. Three and a half billion people connected to the internet. You, don't, you can't say how many people are going to be interested in this. We can guess, but it's more than right. five, and maybe it's less than 50 million, but it's a lot. But don't sell yourself short by just like minimizing the impact you've had before you've had it. At least go out and try. Yeah. And, and I think that that thing you said before where, like, you just don't care, I think they should mm-hmm. teach this. Imagine if, like, your mom and dad sat you down or school. They had this whole course in school when you were, like, in 11th grade that said, okay, I don't give a fuck. That, and that's the name of the course. And the teacher te- No, but just yeah. imagine. Because they're teaching you calculus. They're teaching you chemistry. All these things matter. You don't know how. Mm-hmm. But that mindset thing actually really matters. And I think it is the mindset of an entrepreneur that kind of yeah. completely sets them apart. Mm-hmm. And, but it also can be learned. No, I think that's like that's totally true. I spent an obscene amount of money on a graduate degree, which I value highly. But nowhere, like, it has this entrepreneurship in the name, but nowhere in like the coursework do you actually learn these things that I think you actually need. Right? You have to like you can't become an entrepreneur unless you are hungry. You can't right. do it unless you have fire, unless you have grit. Yeah. Like, and those are things that like those are kind of like soft skills right those those words themselves are hard but they're kind of soft skills right are they <laughs> Grit, grit's a soft skill they're, they're hard it's you know it's not it's not a technical skill right but right. we should be focusing on how we like we teach those things but i do think like but i do think we are teaching them some way just maybe not formal setting but that's where i think like mentorship comes in I want to give you an example where soft skills are taught and they're actually really important. And in the end, they end up being not so soft. And I'm going to go back a long time. One of my mm-hmm. best friends in high school, a guy named Dave Ryer, one of the smartest kids and one of the most athletic kids, got two senators' recommendations and went to the United States Air Force Academy in USAFA, Colorado, near Denver, Boulder. I can't remember where. And they send you there early in the summer and they give you what they call survival training. And survival training is really mindset training. And what they do is they put you in the wilderness, they take away your shoelaces, they take away your belt, and they say, we'll see you in a week. <laughs> but, but what they're doing is, and Dave, when Dave came back for like spring break, or what, I can't remember when it was, he said, here's what I understood that they were doing. And they also gave us a book of knowledge, he said. And we had to. The upperclassmen could stop us at any time and ask us anything that was in that book, and we had to know the answer. And if we didn't, we got punished. The point was that they were breaking them down and rebuilding them 
into the person that they wanted them to be. Now, you can make a value right. judgment as to whether the person they were rebuilding was good or bad. We can argue about that later. But what you can't argue with is the possibility to actually break yourself down and rebuild yourself into yeah. something different if you changed your mindset. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you know, like, when you know how far <laughs> you can fall or, like, suffer, it's like, yeah. you know what? Can't, it can't get, like, worse, right? right. As long as I've got, like, my health of like you know a roof over my head and my laptop, um, I can still make something happen. <laughs> I'll send you some food, by the way, because you may need. Yeah, 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 thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think these things should be emphasized more when we talk about what you need to succeed in entrepreneurship. Can I ask you another question, and then I'll let you go? Yeah. You're sitting there in Chiang Mai. You're amidst all of these digital nomads. Do you think that there's this really interesting and special energy there? I'm not mm-hmm. sure I know what woo-woo is or moo-moo is, but I'll leave that to you. <laughs> I'll leave that to yeah. you to explain later in more technical terms. And we talked about it. Like, It's not just you and me that think that. It's the rest of the world thinks that that's why they're gathering there. So there's definitely something going on there. How hard do you think it would be for you to get not like people that want to learn how to pole dance, but people that want to talk to you and tell those stories? Like, how hard do you think it would be to convince people that are on the street, in cafes, working on building things to come in and talk mm-hmm. and just say, here is why, here's my opinion on why it's so great here? Yeah. I finally launched something at startupchengmai.com uh, a couple months ago. Good. And I felt scared to, like, ask someone to be interviewed. But I just went to him and said, like, hey, I'm working on this thing. And, like, please, could you maybe, like, just, like, talk to me for a little bit? And, you know, I'd like to pick your brain and you know some things. And he was just like, sure, cool. And he just said yes. And I was like, oh, God. It's this thing that I'm like constantly being reminded of. Like, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, it starts at no. But yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm so glad you said that. I do. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupt you. It just makes me excited. But it's always no. If you never ask, the answer to that thing you want to ask is yeah. no. So going back, stop waiting for someone to give you permission. Like, never. just go try it. A good friend of mine says this a lot, like, you know, people, people want to help you. And if you can get over your own limiting beliefs, like you will, you will find that energy. Lots yep. of people won't want to help you, but there will be people who do. And so find those people. Yeah. So how hard is it going to be to sort of like get people to talk to me? Right. I think there's a lot of people. And I think, you know, the, the fact that like Beach City is giving me this like tremendous opportunity to like put my face out there in front of a global audience. Uh, the fact that you, you know, flattered me enough to invite me to like speak for like an hour about everything that I loved and just, yeah. And you know, these connections, these, these opportunities to sort of build my presence and develop my personal brand gives me, you know, the extra confidence and just, you know, that little example clip that I can share with somebody to sort of say like, Hey, you need to come talk to me. Like, this is the thing that we're doing. I'm going to be doing it with or without you. I would like to showcase you and like let's get your side of the conversation yeah i think it's going back like some, someone just needs to do it let's do it let's do and, it <laughs> yeah i i'm totally on board i think there's a lot of really great people here but we have a visibility problem in Mai, right yeah let's change it we have a sense that there's stuff going on we know there are nomads here we know there are a lot a lot of like uh, software companies but like what's happening there's not enough people paying attention like Bangkok gets all of the fun, sexy coverage, right? Because, I mean, come on, let's be realistic. Like, Bangkok's tech scene and ecosystem compared to Chiang Mai just is on another level. But there is something here that's worth shouting about. And 
yeah, if I can be a part of like connecting those people and like giving them a voice, like that would be really tremendous because I think there's there's so much potential here if we can create those connections. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say to you before I let you go. At the beginning of this, you said maybe sort of a third in, you said there's something out there, and I always think like, why doesn't somebody do this? Mm-hmm. So that's what you're thinking right now. So you know who's going to do it? <laughs> you. Apparently, apparently me. Apparently Not apparently. Me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's the perfect way to end, Lily. You are awesome. All right, you are awesome, Michael. I have so much fun talking to you. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Take care.